first episode, I had the pleasure to talk with Miranda Marone, one of the most inspiring sailors of our times, with five decades of experience challenging the ocean limits. Her great love for adventure led her to conquer some of the most challenging waters in the planet. From prestigious races such as Routouron and Volvo Ocean Race, she recently did the Everest of sailing, the Vanda Globe. I hope you can enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and welcome to Peter Tales. Welcome. And thank you for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So let's start. And I've heard that you start on the sailing world quite soon, I heard. Like you were still a child, right? I was very lucky because my father taught me to sail in dinghies. And so I first sailed a dinghy when I was five years old. And I crewed for my father in International 14s when I was eight, nine years old, when we lived in Canada, because it was very light airs and I was quite small. And so it's good to have light crew. And uh, then we, my parents bought a 39-footer, a 39-foot sailboat uh, when we lived in Canada. And then my father was, uh, my father changed jobs and we moved to England and the boat had to come to England too. So we as a family sailed across the Atlantic when I was nine and my brother was eight. And that was our first transatlantic crossing. So, you know, pretty privileged to be able to start that young. And then we crossed the Atlantic again with the same boat when I was 12, when my parents moved to Puerto Rico for work. So uh, I, I guess that I have my father especially to thank, and uh, it's very much thanks to him and uh, because of him that uh, I chose sailing as a career. I love the fact that for you, the Atlantic was almost your backyard. <laughs> it's very, very lucky for you to, to be able to do it so young, for sure. Yeah, very lucky and very and what a privilege. But I love the fact that since you were very young, you start traveling around. But then on your late teenage years, you decided, no, I want to have a normal life. And you went to study a little bit. How did you change your mind to do that? It was always your purpose or it was not at the beginning, it was not your purpose to be a professional sailor, right? Well, when I sailed a lot until the age of 16, when we changed countries again. And uh, I didn't sail at all from the age of 16 to 19. I just had other interests, other things I wanted to do, you know, finish my high school education, go traveling, uh, do an internship in Paris and advertising. And it wasn't until I went to university when I was 19 where I knew nobody at all. And I, but I did know from experience that when you arrive in a new place, the best thing to do if you are a sailor is go and check out the local sailing club. So I went to find the uh, Cambridge University uh, cruising club as it's called and they seemed like a really good bunch of people and I went and trialed for the team and I got on the team so I raced for three years for Cambridge which was fantastic and at the time we had a boys team and a girls team but we did all our training together and with some fairly good sailors some of whom have gone on to win round the world races and so on so it was a really good team and and it worked but I love the fact that even when you had this, let's call it normal life, not related to sailing, of course, not that sailing is not an, a normal way of living, but having a job, let's call it nine to five. And when you were working in advertisement, even there, you were not 
staying in a, in the same place. So I think that traveling for you, it was something that it was really important for you since forever. You started in Paris, like you were saying, then Cambridge, and then you're speaking Sydney. And I've seen that you also worked in Tokyo too, right? Yeah, uh, so straight out from university, I went to work in Tokyo for a big advertising agency. And I went sailing at weekends. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I spent three years in, in Tokyo, which was fantastic. And as it happens, my parents lived there at the time, which is how I discovered the country anyway in the first place. And I raced with a Japanese team. And uh, I raced dinghies at the weekends, sometimes with my father as well, which was great fun. And uh, we won the national championship one year um, in international 14s. But uh, yes, we, we traveled a lot throughout my childhood and I've carried on traveling throughout my adult life. And really, when I left university, I wanted to go sailing. I wanted to go and work on boats. But my father said that it's very important to have a, another career line, that you, know, you, never, you never know what will happen. You need to be able to do many things in life to be able to earn a living. And that I was gonna start with a nine to five job as such, which was in reality more like seven to seven, but um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really enjoyed my four years in advertising. Um, and then uh, after four years, uh, I did actually leave and go sailing. So you were, you were, where were you exactly when you decided, like, okay, no, this is not for me. This is cool and nice. But <laughs> <laughs> what what happened? Like, what was the process? Like, uh, let's say I'd worked in two very interesting countries and cultures, very different, very and you know, quite very dynamic. And then I was posted to a country where. Um, it was slightly less dynamic at the agency uh, in, terms of the, uh, in terms of the work I was doing, and I just thought that maybe it was time for a change. And a change, just let's get in on a boat and travel around the world. Well, I moved to Italy. <laughs> I moved to Italy with my then boyfriend. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not speak a word of Italian. And, uh, you know, I started hanging out on pontoons, asking whether, whether boats needed crew. And I was actually at Key West... Um, race week in, in Florida um, and I walked the pontoon and I was asking all the boats whether they needed crew and usually the answer is no and one boat said yes you can come with us and we won our class it was a really good American boat with I think we were 10 or 12 on board really nice crew one other girl everyone else was everyone else was male and because we won our class, the owner invited me back to the next regatta, which was only a few weeks later in Miami, and we won our class again. And so he invited me and paid my flight to go and race in the, in the, in the Caribbean for the Caribbean season. And I ended up working on that boat for quite a while and ended up running it for a short while as well the following year. So that's how it happened. And while I was at Key West Race Week, I, in those days, this is long before... A, mobile phones or Facebook or anything like that. And so to meet people and to get work, you had to go to the beer tent in the evening after sailing, after racing. And there I met a, a girl called Lisa Charles, who later went on to skip her around the world, a boat in the, in the Whitbread, around the world race. Or it might have become the Volvo Ocean Race by then, I'm not sure. Anyway, nevertheless, the point is, it's really important you to go network with people in a bar and I'll come back to that in a minute because that is how you got work and and it's not sitting it back at home because there was certainly no social networking going on in those days it didn't exist um yeah he had to do it in person 
And uh, Lisa and I stayed in touch, and actually it was thanks to Lisa that I got onto a boat called Ronson Alliance for an attempt at the uh, Jules Verne Trophy, which is around the world record, with an all-female team, and that was actually 26 years ago. And so on the subject of going to the bar to meet people and get work, there's a very famous bar in Horta. <laughs> I think I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> which, amongst other things, serves that purpose. Exactly. But I think that's it. Even today, I was, I was speaking, like I was telling you before, I did, uh, I spent some time with the kids that were in the schooling boats, and they were saying, like, so I don't know what I'm going to do next. What should be my next step? And I told them, like, if you want, you can stay in Orta, and for sure, crew members will be needed, because we don't know how the weather is going to be, but from time to time, boats need uh, needs people to go and to be their crew. Last year it was a really particularly hard season and people were desperate for crew members because the weather was really very, very bad. So a lot of people arrived here with sometimes with broken hands, broken something. So they were like, we need crew because this one it's not able to go back. <laughs> Excellent. I'll leave my CV uh, at the bar then. <laughs> I don't think you need that, but of course you are welcome. But it's, it's something really, really curious to see. When people are like, do you know anyone? They're super desperate sometimes because somebody got hurt. Last year, actually, something really, really special happened. For, for me, it, was, it, it, it looked like a movie. It was a really gray day, so like super, super foggy. And the boat arrived, black, black uh, sails. So it looked like uh, immediately like a pirate ship, all ripped. This is what we do every single day. We see boats arriving. Then we're wondering what happened. So... The boat was with the, it was a couple and the captain, the owner of the boat, <laughs> and the lady was pregnant. So coming here, she started giving birth and she had to call the helicopter to come and pick it up because she was still too far away. The captain said, I'm not leaving my boat, there's no way. <laughs> the weather was super bad. He got in a huge storm, he arrived here. With, he could not even speak or do anything. He was just freezing. <laughs> but I think he survived, and I think he's well. Our theory in Peter was that the baby was called Stormy or something like that. <laughs> oh, what a, what a great story. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, and the guy then, he was looking for crew because he lost two crew members, and he had to do it alone. But speaking about doing it alone... You've just been in a really, really important race and you did it alone. The Vendée Globe, being alone in a boat for how many days? 101 days. How was it? Fantastic. <laughs> I'll explain why. Uh, the Vendée Globe is, a, is, the, it is the Everest of racing. It is, it is an absolutely legendary race. And it's a race that I had wanted to do for many years. But it's pretty hard to get the sponsorship together, to get a boat, and to be on the start line. And in fact, even getting to the start line is, is winning a race in itself. And it, after the Route du Rhum in 2018, when I had been racing in class 40s for a number of years, um, we're, uh, mostly with my husband, Alvard, in fact, um, our sponsorship con was continuing for another two years. And we thought, well, we can either carry on doing all the same racing we've been doing for the last 10, 12 years, or we can do something different. And he reckoned that it was possible to put together a campaign on a really very small budget for the Vendée Globe, which is raced in Imoka 60s, so bigger boats that cost more <laughs> and uh, are harder to sail as well. And, and, we, and really, thanks to him, 
he we did manage to pull it off and we got the boat to the start line so that I could race solo in the Vendée Globe. So absolutely extraordinary and an incredible adventure and a huge privilege. And the reason why it was so fantastic, because you have to work pretty hard to get there, is because with age comes zenitude. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> it's just much more. Oh, oh, I know what it is. I'm not balanced at all. <laughs> it'll, come, it'll come with age. So with age comes endurance and zenitude. And in, hundred, in 101 days, I had five days where I was maybe in a slightly bad mood. And the rest of the time, I was just really enjoying it. What is there not to like? There's no cooking, no cleaning, no paying bills, no land mail, no Gmail, uh, no mobile phone. <laughs> There's only just the, the boat communications. And uh, when, just an incredible experience and an incredible race, a huge adventure. And I, I'm very privileged to have been able to do that. And I had quite an old boat that didn't go that fast, but hey, you know, it's a long way around the world, by the way. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> well, it's quite interesting, though, because these days we have WhatsApp, which works via satellite. And it's quite nice because there's quite good solidarity amongst, crew, amongst the other skippers out there. So we had a skippers group, and then you have groups with the boats that are relatively near you. That means, you know, 800 or 1,000 miles away from you. Um, and so, we're, so we, as a group of skippers, shared good and bad moments and... If somebody did something incredible, then the rest of the group was, wow, congratulations. If it was somebody's birthday, it was like, happy birthday. If somebody had a technical problem, they could put it out on the group, and somebody in the group, if they knew the answer, would give the answer, which is amazing when you think that everyone is actually competing against each other. There was an incredible solidarity among skippers. Um, so we're, we're quite spoiled to have that kind of communications on board now. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and also the other thing was that I did the Vendée Globe during COVID, so uh, well, it was much better being at sea <laughs> than on land. <laughs> and, uh, you didn't wear a mask, so... <laughs> no, no masks at sea, no, no COVID on my phone. And it was quite shocking to see the Orwellian descent of humanity, um, the change, really the big change, uh, from the time the Vendée Globe started in November 2020 and when it finished for most of us in February 2021. Yeah, I can imagine that being on the boat in that, in that situation, it's not very nice. But I still have a question to ask you. And I ask this question every single time that I know that somebody came solo. That's for me the, the most important one because I really like to sleep. And how do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> Well, despite my many years of experience, I'm still not very good at it. Uh, in fact, the rule is you should sleep when the opportunity presents itself, not when you think you should. And so say on a transatlantic, solo transatlantic race like the Route du Rhum, you can sleep, you can get away with about four hours per 24 hours because it's a relatively short race. It's two and a half weeks probably for most of us. Um, so you sleep in 20 to 40 minute periods. On a race like the Vendée Globe, which you know, is the better part of three months, you can't do that. You do need to sleep a bit more from time to time, especially in the south where it's also really cold and very stressful. Um, so the rule is just you need to learn to sleep whenever you can. 
I got quite good at it in the end, but, you know, it's taken me more than 50 years to learn that. <laughs> last year, in the same time that the last story that I told you happened, I had, it, like, believe me, Peter was, it was something super funny at that time because every single table that you went, somebody had a terrible story to tell you. But I had this, I remember exactly, they were, this man was sitting in a corner. It was raining outside, really, really super dark. And I was asking, so how was your trip? How was your trip? And they tell me, you should ask that man over there. Why? He's a solo. Go and ask him. Okay, okay. So, hello, I'm Mariana, blah, blah, all the story. So, how was it? Oh, yeah, it was really very, very bad. Oh, so, but I have to ask you, how did you sleep? Me? Eight hours a night. Yeah. <laughs> but how? I decided if I have to die, I will die on my sleep. <laughs> oh, excellent. So, from that moment, I was like, who am I to question? <laughs> Whatever, like I, I, you answered what I what I asked. So now I know that's my motto of life. I'm tired. I am stressed. But if I have to die, I will die sleeping. That's hilarious. <laughs> I like that. Um, I was reading an interview about uh, this in a yaching world, and you sp there's a part that you describe that one of the most important, interesting parts for you when you arrived was the smell. You sp you spoke something about the smell of land. I have, what is this? Well, when, when you're at sea, the, the, there are very few smells. There's very few scents, very few smells. If it smells of fish, it generally means that there's a whale nearby, just to windward of you, obviously. If it smells of fish and diesel, then it's a fishing boat. And if it just smells of fuel, then it's a ship. And the rest of the time, there isn't really much in the way of smell. There's, you sometimes have the smell of ozone if there's lightning. And you, and, you, and you get that on land too, it's a smell you would, rec you would recognize. Um, but when we're on the beach or you know, on, a, a, on a cliff or whatever and, and there's a good breeze and you, and you smell what you think is the smell of the sea, it's not the smell of the sea at all. Well, it is effectively, but it's not salt, it's not water, it's plankton, it's plankton that's breaking down. Um, and so really there are no smells at sea except what you produce on the boat, so you know, dirty socks. <laughs> Obviously my boats always smell of roses, but <laughs> the food, you know, the, the freeze-dried food when you pour the boiling water in it might smell of, you know, a little bit like spaghetti bolognese if it says spaghetti bolognese on the packet, but really there are very few smells at all. So when you arrive um, at the end of a, a delivery or a, or a race um, in the lee of land, especially if it's been raining or if it's humid, as it is in the Caribbean for example, there's an incredible smell of damp earth, and it is just bewitching. It is fantastic. And you've taken these great lung, lungfuls of damp earth, and it's just, a, it's just an incredible smell. It's just, and you know, and it's also a sign that you're, you're arriving, you're getting to your destination. That, that's something that I never thought. It's, it's very, very amazing. But again, and I'm, I think I'm asking this a lot, but how's the process? Okay, so how, how do you decide, okay, I'm happy, doing all these races and winning mo a lot of them. But, okay, now I want to do exactly what you said, the Everest of, um, of sailing. When did you decide it and how was the process? How did you get ready for it? Mentally and physically and, of course, everything. Well, it was uh, really Alvard, my husband, who um, made the decision by making it possible to do it in the first place because I have no idea to even today how we pulled it off, but we did getting the boat, getting, you know, we're all really on a very tight budget, but, uh, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of hard work 
and a lot of very long days and no weekends off. And, you know, if you want to do something, you sometimes have to work very hard to get it. Um, so lucky me, I was in the right place at the right time. <laughs> That's often, by the way, how things happen to you in the sailing world. Um, and preparing for it, well, once, once, you know that it's a, once you know that that's a race you're doing, then, you know, spending time getting fit, and I spent a lot of time also working on the boat and studying weather, and because it's a race where you're allowed no outside assistance at all, you have to take all, you know, all the weather decisions you take yourself, you go and get your own information, and you, and you decide your route, you're not allowed outside assistance. And you can't stop either, so you need to be able to fix everything or, or almost everything, apart from the black art of electricity in my case, um, and, and just hope that you know, your boat is sufficient, sufficiently well prepared and that you are too, that you're going to get all the way around the track, because if you stop, you're out. And I just think that that would be incredibly gutting. I mean, the, the real aim is to... If you, I didn't have a boat that could win, so my aim was really to finish the race. Um, and uh, basically, I uh, wake up in the morning and the first thing I would think about would be, was the Vendée Globe. I mean, really, you have to, I think anyone who does it would tell you the same thing. And, uh, any, and, and the same for any big project um, in any domain. You, you literally breathe, eat, sleep that. Um, and in my case, it was for two years, a bit, uh, two and a half years. And, uh, and then at the end of it all, I now find it hard to believe that I've even done it. Because it's something that other people do. It's such an amazing thing to have done. But it's, you know, it's such an amazing race that I can't possibly have done it myself, surely. <laughs> and imagine, after all of this, so this is one of the biggest ones, but it's not the only race that you did, of course. But you're a professional. Do you still, are, are you still able to just go sailing for, like, just to have fun? So just like <laughs> a lot of people just go, oh, I'm gonna, it's a sunny day, a little bit windy, let's go and enjoy. Can you still do that? <laughs> <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> uh, it, it kind of depends on the boat. <laughs> um, yeah, well, yes. And it also depends on the people on the boat. I can imagine. <laughs> I, I, have, I haven't had that much time to just go, oh, cool, it's a sunny day, let's go sailing. <laughs> Yet. Maybe I will, maybe I will. <laughs> But we've just um, just had the opportunity to cruise a little bit, which is a completely new thing for, for us. <laughs> and uh, it was fantastic. And actually stop in nice places and, and uh, just you know, get, to know, get to know places a bit better and get to know the people. Uh, because often we, in racing, we sail, we, we race past amazing places that, you've, that we've read about and heard about, but we never get to stop. So now the aim is to try and stop at more places and, and get to know them. So you were saying that depends on the people, as I can imagine. So what's harder? Is it harder to, uh, to do it alone or with a lot of people? Uh, really, what is absolutely crucial if you are sailing with a lot of people is that you like and respect them. And maybe you wouldn't go on holiday with them, but you w you've got to at least hope that everyone is, is there for the same reason and is pulling in the same direction. So as long as you, as long as you respect your fellow crew members, then I think it can work. And I've done a huge amount of double-handed racing, so just two people on board. And that really is the best of both worlds because you spend a lot of time on your own on watch. Uh, so it's kind of false solo as such. When you're off watch, you sleep well because there's someone else looking out for the boat. 
and you get to share the good and the bad moments. When you're sailing solo, the advantage of sailing solo is that if you make a mistake, well, you have no one else to blame but yourself. <laughs> and, and if things go, and if you, if you do something you know, that ends with a good result, then, well, you know, you can thank yourself for, <laughs> for the work. So I'd say double-handed and solo have a huge amount to recommend them. Uh, solo because it's just the ultimate challenge, and, it's, and, I, and I find it fascinating that I remember at the end of my first transatlantic solo race that I couldn't believe that the boat and I had got to the other side, just the two of us, you know, the boat and me. Um, but double-handed racing is fantastic as well because you just, you know, you can, you share it. But I really wouldn't recommend sailing across the Atlantic or anywhere, any bit of ocean or any, or in fact anywhere if with somebody who you don't know already a little bit and uh, certainly somebody you, you must respect them and, and trust them because ultimately there's not a lot between your boat and the sea and the boat is your safety and your home and and that's uh, and incidentally that's why sailing I, I love sailing so much as well is because we get to go away away from land problems land issues bad news um, fake news uh, <laughs> propaganda and so on because at sea all that matters is your safety and you know your survival ultimately and your world is reduced to the boat the sea and the sky and it's that's very pure Wow. <laughs> um, I think I know the answer to this question, but I have to ask, do you ever think, and after this answer, of course, do you ever get sick of being in sea? Like, imagine, do you ever like, oh, I really wanted to be, for example, in the Azores, in Fayal. <laughs> do you ever get this feeling like, I really wanted to go, okay, it's enough of sea for the next two weeks, and I need to, to stand a little bit in firm ground, or you don't get these kind of feelings anymore? Because like, your boat is your home at, at this point. Uh, well, I do, no, I do, I like my land life too. I like seeing my friends and my family and you know, going to the pub, or going to the bar, and eating good food <laughs> that's not freeze dried and mixed in a packet with boiling water. Um, so no, 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 I've, I've always liked my land life too. I like both. Um, uh, the, but when, when I'm at sea, and I think I speak for quite a number of sailors, um, I do not allow myself to project. I, don't, I, didn't, I, I just cannot project being on land because we're a superstitious bunch at sea. So if I think, goodness me, if the wind stays like this in three days, we'll be in Horta, in the Azores, which is somewhere we have not managed to go for the last two transatlantic crossings because the weather has been so awful. Um, I can't, I can't, I'm not allowed to think about that because things could go wrong. And I have to say, coming into Horta this time around, it was pretty full-on, pretty fruity conditions coming in. And it really wasn't until, you know, we're in the, we're in the lee of land and getting the sails down that we go, the sails, the sail, because there was only one left by then, because it was that windy. Um, going, oh, goodness, <laughs> we might actually have made it. Um, and similarly, uh, after a long passage uh, or a transatlantic race or around the, you know, a race across any ocean, I only allow myself to think about the possibility of a beer, you know, a beer bottle with all that condensation dripping down the outside and a good steak uh, in the last 24 hours. And then only if the weather is good and I know that, I'm not, that nothing dreadful is likely to happen between thinking that 
and finishing. I can, I can see that. We have a marina full of drawings because some, someone said, if you don't paint a drawing in the Orta Marina, you're not going to have a nice trip. So, as you can see... <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yes, that's, you didn't know this? I didn't know, I didn't know that was the reason. No. But I, I, think it's, I think it's a great tradition. It's obviously been going on for many years. And uh, there's some very talented uh, artists out there. But it is the superstition. It's exactly this, because they say that if you don't draw, you're not going to have nice winds. So everybody's like, okay, give me, give me all the ink that I can find just to paint everywhere. There must be, there must be a shop in Horta that's doing a roaring trade. In. I actually never I thought about it. I have no idea who, who sells the, <laughs> the paints. Well, yeah. I mean, unless you plan to definitely stop here. You know, I remember we arrived here like 10 years ago with a can of orange spray paint. Well, that's, you know, it's not very classy, is it? <laughs> but did you find your drawing? <laughs> no, it's gone. <laughs> So you have to do, you have to put some, I don't know, you have to make it better and with the plastic on top, I don't know how, how to keep it. I don't know, but there are some very, very good ones. There. There I'm, sure, I'm sure that a little bit of internet research would uh, give the answer to how to keep your painting in water. Um, in every, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, you have to be smart where you put it as well, because if it's not, if it's on the, on the floor, people are just going to get run and walk yeah, through it, so yeah. it's not going to yeah. survive. But yeah, and supposedly the, the flags in Peter as well, they have some part of this, a little bit of this superstition around it as well. And for us, it's amazing because you don't pay for decoration, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what people come to see yeah, as well. It's, a, you know, it, it's, it's such an institution. <laughs> um, this is a, a, a quite crazy question, but I had to ask. You spoke about your husband like, a few times during this conversation, and I was wondering if... Uh, your husband being a sailor was something that was like, it was mandatory request. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all, not at all. Um, but uh, as it turns out, uh, since uh, we don't have children and we both do the same job, more or less, uh, it's, it's relatively straightforward. But what has been really nice is that we have built boats together and we've raced together a huge amount over the past, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 years. Um, and when we're racing, we're not a couple at all. We're simply two people with the same ambition and the same goal on the boat. And we're quite, we work quite well together. And, you know, Alvard is much better at some areas on the boat than I am, especially technically. And there are some things that I do better than he does. And so it actually works really well. Um, and we get to the end of a transatlantic race, a double-handed transatlantic race, and it's like, oh, hello, darling, I haven't seen you for weeks. Because really, when we're racing, we're not a couple. We, we're just two people at work. And, uh, and we never spoke about that. That's just the way that it's worked out. Does it ever get easier to do a transatlantic crossing? Does it ever get easier? No. <laughs> people... I know that it's... It, it's, it's become easier for way more people to do a transatlantic crossing that does not mean that the sea has got any safer at all you know it's the same ocean it's the same sea the same ocean as it was 2000 years ago albeit more polluted unfortunately uh, one cubic meter of water still weighs a ton so when that's crashing over the deck and it's more than one cubic meter at a time generally just think about the huge forces the impact of nature and, and, you know, where you, you, are, you can find yourself feeling incredibly small out in the ocean. You know, you, there's not a lot between you and 
and, and things going you know thoroughly wrong. Um, and I and I and I really I think and I hope that people do not start thinking that it's something easy. It can be. You can be lucky and have really nice, easy conditions, but it shouldn't be taken lightly. Actually, that was my next question. You've been doing this for a couple of years now, so <laughs> <laughs> do you actually feel the difference? Like, because some some people they they speak about, oh yes, of course it's getting polluted, but can you see a big difference? And I think you're in the sea. That's that's your job. That's your life. Well, we 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 tend to only see rubbish. Anyone at sea will only see rubbish when, it, when it's relatively calm, because when it's rough, you can't yeah. really see it. Uh, except that sometimes you hit something hard and that can do a lot of damage. Um, uh, you know, we know that containers fall off ships every winter in the storms. There's a lot of wood floating around. There's a huge amount of sargasso weed, which is just a pain. Um, and there is a lot of plastic, because we had a few calm days uh, on this crossing from Antigua, and we had a couple of calm days, and we saw you know, fishing boys and plastic bottles and so on. But even today, just on Fayal at the old, is it the old whaling? Yes. Harbour, yeah. It, yeah, it was, was, it was incredible, yeah. No, not at Porto Pima, at, um, uh, in Fayal? Right at, right at the other end, yeah. The, the f fishing factory? They no, 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 the, where there used to be a whaling station, where they launched, near the, um, near the volcano. Oh, yeah? yes, 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 okay. in, in Capolinos. Yes. Okay, so a few days ago, when we were coming in, there was a big southerly blowing. Okay, so big seas, probably, well, big, four metres, which is big enough, okay? So it's left a lot of <laughs> Portuguese men-of-war jellyfish oh, yes. and a lot of rubbish in the higher pool there. And the amount of rubbish that's there, there's crocs and bottles and fishing buoys and, and foam, and I'd say that that's a fairly good indicator of... Yeah, what course. was in the ocean, you know, for those 24 hours when it was blowing from the south. So, yeah. It's something that's a shame. I thought, I thought it was in, in Porto Pim because <laughs> that, that used to be my favorite beach when I was a kid. Yeah. And now it's impossible. It's, uh, it's impossible for you to bath there at really? all because it's so full of plastic. Of course, it depends oh, on the winds. Right, yeah. And in here, in the Azores, everything depends on the winds. So, should I dry my clothes? Yeah, it's north wind, so you should. You can wash your clothes today because it's going to get dry. <laughs> going to the beach is exactly the same process. What wind is today? Oh, it's south. We cannot go to the south part of the island at all. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah at all. It's that bad. Oh, because no, it's terrible. in Portuguese Man of Wars, it's one of the factors, oh, of well, course, jellyfishes yeah. in general. Uh, but the plastic, it's, it's unbelievable. And for, for the last few years, it's on, not, only, not only the plastic, but the seaweeds are getting crazier and crazier. Oh, do you get sargasso weed? Yes. Yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, we yeah. do. We do. That's terrible. But you know, there's one thing that I think I will never forget. We had Lorenzo in 2019. It came from the south, so it was like it was a big a hurricane. Big for us, at least. <laughs> and the south part of the island got really affected, and because we build a lot of houses next to the to the um, to the sea, and the, the winds and the, and the waves were so big and so strong that some of the houses did got a little bit affected, and some of the houses actually disappeared with the with the waves, and all the population got together and were cleaning. And one of the days I was cleaning as well, and there was this moment that I was like, "This is so messed up." I was cleaning and. While I was cleaning the ocean, because it was at the beach, I found what it should be, like some kind of aquarium or something. And it was the pieces of the aquarium full of, like, they were made of plastic. But it was like algae made of plastic, seashells made of plastic. Oh, no. <laughs> so this was like, 
this is so messed up. <laughs> Because this is not supposed to be here. <laughs> it shouldn't be here at all, and it's plastic. But again, like yesterday or two days ago, I was just crossing in Porto Ping and the the wind just gave it a break because it was not very, very dirty, but again, full of, full of plastic. And I was just taking some of the plastic away, the ones that I could grab until I got my hands full. And I was like, okay, this is enough. So it, I think it's just a problem. And this is a question that somebody, that people ask me a lot that is like, how do you live in an island? How do you can live surrounded by sea all the time? And this is what I'm scared of most. It's, when it's not only sea that it's surrounding me, but it's plastic, like it is in some parts of the world. Like you cannot just go to the sea and swim without yeah, being, oh, no, plastic, that's, oh. That's terrible, that's such a shame. And this is something that we really, really don't want to do and don't want it to, to become like this. And this happened to me, I was, I was just traveling and I, I was in Mexico and one of the beaches, I was so happy to be there. I was swimming and then just swimming through a plastic bag. Oh, no. And this is what I don't want yeah. to do at all. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, we're right in the middle of the Atlantic here. Well, almost. And it's, you know, it's supposed to be a really pristine part of the world. And I, I just, you know, I was pretty shocked at the rubbish I saw today that had been brought in by the sea. A real shame. It We is. need to do, yeah, just more and more. It's all about education, educating people to, well, and, and persuading, uh, you know, some companies to change Of their course. packaging and so on. I think it would be easier to, to change mentalities. Than to yeah. do yes, you're right, you're right. I think so too. Let's see. <laughs> But speaking about traveling again, <laughs> uh, do you have any place that you've been that was like, I don't know, like it was most impressive for you? Oh, there are lots of places I like for different <laughs> reasons. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> But since I am right now sitting in the Azores, I can say this is certainly one of my favorite places. And what I like about it is that, uh, well, unless you come on an aeroplane, but I think it's more interesting to sail here. Now, everyone who has, come, who has arrived here by boat has actually sailed quite a distance because I think the nearest land is 800 miles away. So, you know, you've got to put in a bit of effort to get here. And I think that's what makes it so magic and, and what preserves it too. I'm happy that you said that because a lot of people, they come here and they're so happy just because it was so long at the sea. <laughs> <laughs> and they are just so happy to have more people to say, yeah, this is so long, I'm so happy. <laughs> and it's so, it's, so, it's so amazing because of that, I think. It's, it's exactly it. People that, if they are here, they had to suffer a little bit to get here, unless, again, they came yeah. by airplane. But with SATA, our... <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't knock Our it. flight <laughs> company here, we have to suffer as well. And I <laughs> But the other, <laughs> the other, the other thing is that a a, a well-known sailing friend of mine um, has a theory, which I think, and I think she's right, is that unless you've had a little bit of a hard time en route to wherever it is you're going, be it on delivery or racing then you haven't really earned your beer or your gin and tonic or whatever it is. So, no, it shouldn't be that easy to get here. That's the whole point. But, yes, you should, once you get here, be able to enjoy it. And um, <laughs> there, there are some nice places. I know of one. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it's very important after an experience like that. Um, you know, it, I mean, it depends. If you've had a really easy time, then maybe there's not much to talk about. But if you've had a bit of a tough time... And especially if it's, you know, a new experience. And let's say it's a new experience every time because the sea is never the same yep. 
from you know from one day to the next or from one transatlantic to the next and it's important to talk about that that experience with the people that you were sailing with and that is generally done over you know good food and a drink or two and uh, so basically this is the perfect spot for that again thank you I I have to swear that I didn't pay you to say any of this. <laughs> maybe I will. Maybe I should. <laughs> no, but it's true. It's true. It's true. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I hadn't thought about this before. I'm just kind of thinking about it now. But it is, it is true. And it's an important thing. We had a fairly difficult time the last night before we arrived here. And we, we knew we were going to. But for one of our, there were three of us, and Elvia, who was, racing, who was sailing with us, it's his first transatlantic. And, you know, at one stage I was just like, you know what, I think you should get, come inside the boat and we'll shut the doors. Um, and he must have been thinking, where, what have I got myself into? You know, so we tied up at the, we tied up at the dock at quarter past seven and, you know, got a bottle of rum out. <laughs> so everyone could talk about the experience, which is of no interest to anyone beyond our crew, but it was important to have that conversation. I can imagine. I have three more questions to ask you and I think we should stop after this because it's going to be crazy long <laughs> but just three okay so the first one is do you ever intend to stop oh uh, well you know and what's, what's stopping for you actually? What, what is stopping is it is it just uh, not not having my own my very own project or is it no or is it not being involved with the marine industry at all I can't imagine that um, I don't I don't know uh like many sailors, I often don't know what I'm doing next week or next month, or <laughs> I certainly don't know about next year, or very rarely. Um, and, you know, we all have to earn a living, so I expect I'll be carrying on for some time because actually I still enjoy it, so why not? And uh, this is probably one of the questions that people ask you the most, but for, for, for me and as a woman I have to ask, because in some way I also... I live in a sailor's world in, in a different kind of aspect. I'm the one serving them most of the times. So. Yeah, you must see quite a few things. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's fun. <laughs> this period is really fun, actually. But sometimes it, I, I, cannot, I cannot say that it's very frequent to, to feel like it's a woman's world. So I think that it's getting better. And for me, in my, in my vision, it's getting more and more women uh, joining this world as well. But it's still a lot of a man's world, and we still have a lot of men coming and, and by boats and doing these transatlantic uh, trips. Uh, how do you feel about this? Do you think it's still completely a man's world? Do you think like you feel it's changing or? Uh, well, I, oh goodness, I've been I've been in this fairly male-dominated world for a long time, and I have to say I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, I have never. I have personally, very very rarely felt that being a woman has been a. Okay. A problem for me but yes actually thinking back when I was first trying to break into sailing when I lived in Italy it was quite difficult because well they <laughs> generally men male crews won't take women on their boats but we got around that because we raced as all female crews and then we had our boat and it was fine um, nowadays especially in France where ocean racing which is what I do is is really highly developed uh, there women have their place and there, for me, there is no doubt. In other countries, I think there is still a huge amount of progress to be made. But, uh, you know, if you can prove your worth and 
Uh, honestly, I think that women have their very much have their place okay. in sailing, and there and you know if crews won't if men's boats won't take you on as crew, well, just put your own project together. I know it sounds really easy, just put your project together. It's not, but there are solutions. Okay, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. If you have any advice for future girls or everyone, let's let's not say girls. Like, do you have any advice for everyone that's future sailors? Yeah, future sailors. Well, if you want a career as a sailor, unless uh, well, if you want a career as a racing sailor, on the whole, expect to eat a lot of pasta <laughs> because it's not contrary to what people believe. Well paid. It's not working on a super yacht where you would be well paid. Um, and, uh, you know, network and get out and meet people, not behind your telephone or your computer, but in real life, go on the pontoon, go and look at boats, go and talk to people, go to the bar. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed, because it's a lot of right place, right time. There is certainly an element of luck as well. Um. To end, and I swear this is the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. I, I think I'm gonna know the answer, but for. I think you just answered this, but soon. What's the plan? What's next? So now you're in the Azores. Yes. What's well, next? I, <laughs> all good things come to an end. I think that tomorrow morning we will probably leave for Lorient, um, which is 1,200 miles away. Um, and because it's time to get the boat back to mainland Europe. And uh, then uh, it'll be time to work out what next, but uh, hopefully, another, hopefully another trip to the Azores soon. We'll be here waiting for you. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be back. Okay, so from this moment until the next time that you're here, this is for you. Oh, thank you very You have much. to finish it. <laughs> I'll send you a photo of the empty bottle. Okay, I'll be waiting. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's wonderful. This is, I think, I think you tried our gin. If you don't, you don't have an excuse. We're going there now. <laughs> We're going there right now. Exactly. To have, <laughs> for our last, for our, probably our last evening on land for, well, you know, five or six days. Um, and, and, uh, and to have a thoroughly good meal. There we go. That's good. Thank, thank you, you for coming. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>